This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to The Edge of Analytics. Edge of Analytics. Here again, Kate Massey. Welcome back. This is a business radio special presentation from the floor of the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Cade Massey, co-host of Wharton Moneyball. In this half hour, we have Ted Knutson, owner and founder of StatsBomb. StatsBomb, for those of you who don't know, is the leader, probably, private provider of statistics in soccer at the frontier of soccer for more than 10 years now. Great conversation with Ted about how he's gotten where he is, the various iterations he's seen in his life from gambler to inside the sports book to helping sports teams to now doing his own thing and spreading analytics throughout soccer. Before that, we talked to Ann Milgram. Ann is professor at NYU Law School. She was famously the attorney general in New Jersey, where she brought the kinds of analytics and database decision-making to criminal justice that we so often talk about in sports and in business, but we see her pushing it in criminal justice. Fascinating conversation within. Enjoy. I'm Cade Massey, co-host of Wharton Moneyball, and I'm on the floor of the conference now talking with Ann Milgram. Ann is professor at the NYU Law School. She's a professor of practice and distinguished scholar there. She runs the criminal justice lab. Before that, famously, she was New Jersey's attorney general. And she uses analytics in a way many sports analytics people would be familiar with, but she uses it in criminal justice. Anne, thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. Appreciate your, you. Appreciate your being here. Anne has also spoken at the Wharton People Analytics Conference a few years That's ago. Right. And she's on a panel this afternoon, or this afternoon? This afternoon. This afternoon on analytics in the Wild West. They, the, yes. the folks around here at the sports conference allow themselves one non-sports panel. And they brought Anne for, in for that. What do you think you're going to be talking about? How can, how, why are you here, Anne? And what are you going to be talking about with all these sports people? Yeah, so um, I was surprised by the invitation, but excited. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, I follow sports analytics. But the idea was basically to sort of look at other industries and spaces and see what they're doing. Mm-hmm. What's fascinating about criminal justice and why I love to come to places like this is that we are so far behind in the criminal justice space on data and analytics. Okay. There's no rules of collecting data. Local jurisdictions do it however they want, if at all. The police department does it separate from prosecutors and from courts. And so where something like sports or healthcare is, is wildly ahead of where criminal justice is. Are there people in the criminal justice system who, when that is pointed out to them, find it motivating? Like this is an opportunity? Look what these other fields are doing? Yeah. You know know what? Yes. I mean, the short answer is yes. And I spend a lot of my time at NYU talking to people throughout the country about how they can use data analytics. Mm -hmm. Um, Right now, we're building a tool for the Indianapolis Police Department to help them screen for mental health, substance abuse, homelessness. So it's sort of a question in my mind is how do we use data and analytics most effectively to increase public safety, reduce incarceration, and increase fairness and equality. And so, you know, how to use data in those spaces, it really, it, it really requires um, a commitment from local jurisdictions to do it. So can you tell us what that looks like? So a, a product for Indianapolis, what, is, what are some of the specifics there? Right. So that's a, that's a great question. So the, just a tiny bit of background, my, my work in New Jersey when I was AG, I ran the Camden Police Department, and that's where I first started using data and analytics. We dropped violent crime by 41% in one year, and I my basically gosh. realized the power of data and analytics. And part of it is just understanding your system, right, which we had no insight into what we were doing, where officers were located, where the violence was happening, who okay. was committing the violence. So you've got some people who would be animated by, in a positive way, by the success 
outside of criminal justice with data, so therefore they want to do things. I'm sure you have people who are um, reluctant or yes. even opposed. Yes. And one of the conversations that's happening in lots of quarters right now is a kind of a sophisticated opposition, which is it's not against analytics, it's against biased analytics. Right. And that if you're trying to build these models, how do you avoid some of the institutional biases that are in the old data? So, for example, you know, the, the classic examples are it looks like African-Americans are they come into the models as a as a like a negative predictor because historically they've, they've, there's been biases against them. Yeah, this is such an important conversation, and it, it is part of the conversation we're going to have here, and we should have nationally. Data and analytics are a tool. Tools can be good and tools can be bad, and I think that's a lot of the conversation we should be having is what do those tools look like, who gets access to them, what information. But let me say one thing on the bias and criminal justice data. The short answer is yes. The, the data is biased. The criminal justice system is biased, right? There is a structural inequality that exists in our criminal justice system. So to me, and you know, I'll give you an example, I ran, when I was AG, the state juvenile justice system. It was 98% minority. That simply cannot be right. And so there are structural problems. The foundation of the system has structural inequalities. And so the data has biases. I would argue the data in education is the same types of biases. In healthcare, the same, right? There are, There's inequity of care and access to education. But to me, when we think about criminal justice data, there's sort of two really important points. First of all, the system is biased. And so it's not a question of we're working with the perfect system and the data will make it biased. We're we're working with a deeply biased system that we have to figure out how to make fair, more equitable, Mm -hmm. and more just. And Mm so the question isn't perfection. The question is, can we improve it? Mm -hmm. Right? So Mm -hmm. that's the first point. The second point is that, again, the data and the algorithms can be good or bad depending on how, they, how they're built, how they're used, what kinds of work is done on avoiding and minimizing data bias. And so, to me, it's not a question. You know, we live in a country, 70 million Americans have criminal records, which is completely unacceptable. So, to me, the question is, how do we use data in a way that we're all comfortable with mm-hmm. to improve a system that is deeply broken? And mm-hmm. so... You know, it's like if I said to you, you shouldn't use an airbag because Toyota once made a bad airbag. The answer is you should use a good airbag Mm -hmm. and you should use it in a way that you feel comfortable. And that may be not the best analogy, but there's a lot of ways to think about how do we use data transparently, safely, openly to protect people's rights and equalities and actually to make things better. Mm -hmm. Can I give you one quick example? The risk assessment tool I built when we were at the Arnold Foundation, the state of New Jersey has now used it to largely eliminate bail. And bail is a financial condition that's set and that is essentially keeps people in jails across America. If you can't pay $500, you stay in. Okay. So New Jersey used the algorithm as the base level. The judges still make all the decisions of who gets released and detained. So, so the algorithm, is a, is, it stands in for the judge saying whether or not they need to be detained or not. It doesn't stand in for the judge. What it, it advises does is, them. It takes, it, yes, it advises them. It basically takes the factors that judges already consider, prior criminal convictions, right. whether or not the current offense is violent, and this is all transparent. And then it gives that information to the judge who then looks at who the person is, what the crime is that's been committed, and then the judge makes a decision. New Jersey's jail is down by almost 40%. In one year. Right. And so when you think about reducing incarceration and how to move systems, the data is critical and having more objective measures is critical. So 
how, what have you found about judges' willingness to lean on that advice? And if people studied that, because yes. done, I've done some research that find people are reluctant to use algorithms, and maybe they like it until they make, until they make a decision and then it proves to be wrong. So right. even if they're right nine <laughs> yeah. times out of ten, as soon as that algorithm goes wrong, they're like, well, this thing is junk. Right. So David Epstein, who I think you guys are going to talk to mm-hmm. next, um, mm-hmm. said something to me once that I think is one of the most brilliant things in this space, which is that we hold we don't hold people to a standard of perfection we're pretty forgiving when it comes to things like bias but we hold technology to a standard yes, of perfection absolutely. and that's really true right um about judges so first of all i've been yelled at by judges across the united states of america <laughs> so let me just say that who've told me i know better my gut is better and my answer has always been look this is about this is about data plus gut Right. I'm not telling you to take right. your gut out. I'm telling you, take some information that can actually combine factors and, and things in a way that judges couldn't do. Yeah. But what was profoundly impactful for the judges and the reason why I think that nationally the tools in use in over 40 jurisdictions is that we ran the underlying data in a lot of court systems. And you see this incredible thing where judges, they want low risk people to be out, to take their kids to school, to go to jobs. And they want high risk people, the people who are dangerous and pose a risk to society, to be incarcerated. And when you actually pull the data in jurisdictions, which, by the way, no jurisdiction does on a regular basis, you see huge percentages of low-risk people being detained on low amounts of money bail. And you see about half, the high-risk group is about 10% of all people or less. It's really small. But you see half of those people being let out in almost every jurisdiction. Those people can afford huge amounts of money or judges undervalue risk. When you show that to a judge and you can say, you want one thing to happen, the exact opposite is taking place. That changes the entire conversation. Okay. Okay. Well, the way you're talking about this is just exactly the way analytics around here gets talked about because that conversation, and it's not as important as what you're doing, but that persuasion effort inside buildings, inside with coaches or personnel guys or players, it's the same thing. It's the exact same conversation. How do you convince someone where you know the model is helpful? You're not saying replace their judgment just as an advisory thing. But you still got to convince them that this very different way of thinking is effective. Have you been yelled at by a lot of coaches <laughs> or owners. managers, yeah. owners? Um, it, it's a it's a it's a fun challenge. Yeah. It is a fun challenge, but it, but it, but, it, but it means you got to be better. It's more than just being good at numbers. You've got to yes. have you've got to have some ability to convince people, persuade them. It's not just about having a better regression. Yes. You're running around the country doing this with with criminal justice. Listen, and thank you so much for taking time out of your conference. We wish you the best with the work, for sure, and also have fun with the conference today. Thank you. Thanks right. so much. You bet. See you. Take care. This is a SiriusXM Business Radio special program from the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. I'm Cade Massey, co-host of Wharton Moneyball, and I'm on the floor of the conference here talking with Ted Knudsen. Ted is owner and founder of StatsBomb. He's been involved in the sports analytics business in some capacity his entire career. Out of Chicago, did a little undergraduate work at the University of Oklahoma, grad work, Emory, has lived in Charlottesville before going to the Caribbean, now he's in London, and very interesting career. Ted, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Appreciate your being here. You've got an 11 o'clock session coming up here um, at the conference. You're going to be with Daryl Morey. Yeah. Um, talking about what? Give us a little sense of what that, that session's going to be about. I, it was very kind of Daryl. Like, he's been talking about his own soccer opinions on Twitter for a while. And Daryl has some interesting opinions that may or may not be uh, validated by some of the world's greatest coaches. And so he offered to, to use that as a context to kind of talk about where soccer analytics is and where it might be going and how far behind it is. Of like Everybody's behind baseball, but um, you know, NBA is quite 
quite good. Right. And so we're not anywhere near there. Does Does Daryl think that NBA has jumped baseball? I mean, if we were going to compare, they, they baseball had such a head start, but then ownership is just so much more advanced in basketball. And it seems like they kind of leapt leapt over them. I don't know what Daryl thinks, but I've talked to some people in baseball who also keep their you know, fingers in the in the basketball world and now with all of the technology that baseball has like it's another leap forward i see okay so technology has helped them jump forward it's um, amazing like the high-speed cameras and everything that's going on there and yeah, like the the, launch angles and exit velocities and pl- training the players like so this is like a new era there's almost like three eras of how right. sports analytics uh happens and data is applied to it so like the first era is always we're going to analyze players like how can we find better players on the cheap how can we spend money on this thing more this efficiently? classic money Ball, right, early two thousands, Billy is. Bean, absolutely, okay. and it makes sense because, like, when you look at it from a business perspective, which you know apparently you guys have some attachment to, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's your biggest asset center, mm-hmm. but also your biggest cost center. So, like, mm-hmm. if we can make that more efficient, it's really good and useful. And then the next phase is how do we play the sport better, and how do we find coaches that play the sport better? Right. What are the superior strategies? By the way, and how do we talk the coaches into using those superior strategies? Still tricky, mm-hmm. always tricky. <laughs> and then and then the last one is really all right. The the market is mostly efficient for players. So how do we find players and then make them better? And that's where the player development comes in. And that really is where the tech comes in. And you start disrupting the coaching element of it. Disrupting it in that you're giving the coaches new tools to work with. You're, re, you're changing how they should be coaching. They've been doing one thing for, I don't know, decades. And now you're saying, eh, this is a, we need to go about this a little differently. Well, you're not only doing that, but you're completely revolutionizing the population of coaches because okay. the old style ones don't have the skill set. So either they have to learn the new skill set right. and be open to that, or right. you just don't use those guys anymore. Right. And you see a revolution of who's employed as coaches because they're much more technology open and, and willing to sort of push the boundaries of how we can train players more scientifically. Okay, That's huge. It, it, it is, and, and it's, I think it's a great way to think about it because it does show that that baseball has jumped ahead of the other sports because it does feel like baseball's farther advanced in that front. I mean, they, they I mean, we've, we've heard, I mean, players are reconstructing their swing based on what they've learned through this new technology. Yeah, and the, the way the bullpens are used, and there's just mm-hmm. so many little things that have changed about the game that are really about optimality, and mm-hmm. how do we find something that is just a little bit better than it used to be, and it often involves destroying the common wisdom and finding a better way. Okay. So we've been talking baseball. Your specialty, of course, is soccer. Can you give us a, a little background on Stats Bomb? You, you were involved in soccer in a variety of capacities. A little background on you. You, you. you did some gambling, then you went in-house with Pinnacle, which is probably the, the most highly reputed sports book maybe out there, one of the most influential sports books out there. You created some of the important products like live betting and NBA. Then you pop over and start doing your own thing on soccer. You've worked inside some teams. That's right. And now you have your own organization, Stats Bomb. One of the things you all have done is looked around the world and said, we don't have the data we need to do the analysis we want, so we have to build our own data. So can you tell us a little bit about how you've gone about that and, and, where, and what you're primarily interested in now at this point? So I came out of the the teams in 2016, and I looked around and I wanted to kind of like build our product set for our next team. Like, how do we how do we start the ground hit the ground running? You know, I don't want to spend the time like building the tech for this. Like, I'd let's just like let's go when we get there. So we did it ourselves, and this way I would own it, and we could we could you know bring it wherever we wanted to. But looked around and realized that instead of for my next team, all teams could use this. So suddenly you've gone from this is my next job to this is a business. Mm-hmm. And uh, so our first thing that we did in like 
February of 2017 was we uh, built a, an insight business layer effectively over data. And it was a different data company, and we'd been using that data company since I started in, in football in 2013. But what we were finding was that we were running up against the edges of the data and what we could really explore with that. Um, so we hit a point where like some frustrations with that, also some frustrations with like customer service, et cetera. And we, we decided that, you know, what if we did our own? And so we looked around the market, tried to find somebody to partner with, because obviously this is hard. Like, <laughs> right. The logistics. So let's, let's be clear about the industry. So you would love to have motion tracking data. Yes. And it's technologically available, but not outside of teams. And so you don't have what you really need. So you've got, and nobody can get it if you're not working for a team. So you've got to go construct your own. That's right. And we use event data. And it, actually, if you have to choose between tracking or event, you'd still choose event as one of the, like, the thing that you need to have because these are the actions that are having. So okay. you're able to profile skill sets, et cetera. Okay. Um, so anyway. Uh, but you'd love both if you could have them. Well, the combination would be. The, the, okay. the combination's the best. And that's one reason why NBA has amazing data and baseball is is also just almost primarily event based but right. like they have so much information packets into it. Yep. So yeah, we uh, uh May of two th- th- 2018 we launched our own data and now we're on 25 leagues that we collect and mm-hmm. growing rapidly and mm-hmm. uh but it was really to one to combat like the the problems that we had or the holes that we were finding in in competitor data, but the other one was to start answering coaches about the things that they brought that they didn't like or that we couldn't directly say. Well, yeah, you're you're right. We don't have that, so like maybe we can fix that. Right, right. Well, so talk a little bit. Well, let's be clear. Let's be clear. You constructed your own data through a combination of computer vision and manual input. So you've got a, you guys own an organization in Egypt, I believe, where you've got guys hand coding, spending 12 hours on a match, hand coding everything that happens and pairing that with computer vision. This is a heck of an effort. Uh, you know, some of it's baby steps, but like, you know, part of it is, can we make our collection more productive? And part of it is, um, can we continue using the same number of hours but then collect new things as the the algorithms take over and also make you know potentially fewer errors or have better uh, locational sense because you know a human doing this is quite a taxing thing if you ever collect data you realize that it's fairly miserable <laughs> i can imagine right right okay so you've got the data now and you're involved you, you you probably do a little bit of gambling you probably want to sell some products to gamblers but you're also advising teams Tell us, a, my, 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 my understanding of you from having seen your work and talked to you a bit is that your analytics are informed by your experience as a gambler and your analytics are informed by your experience inside clubs and talking to coaches. How, how do you think you go about your analytics differently from because of that experience? Well, I, I, can, I can assure you that the way that I would have done things in 2007, one was probably wrong, but two, uh, it was very different because of the experience tempers a lot of the things that you say and how you, uh, how you communicate. And, okay. Can, but, that's a fascinating word you use there. Tempers how you communicate. Which, like, give us an example of how that experience has tempered what you say. Well, from, so I can tell you like how the gambling experience like sort of pushes into this. Uh, you put out a model, and then the traders are testing the model against the market, right? And so, like, if some at, at Pinnacle, especially like where you have a lot of liquidity, you find out that something's wrong fairly fast. <laughs> and if you're wrong, it's terrifying because you're like, well, we could lose, you know, not anywhere between ten and one hundred and fifty thousand on this silly little game that, that's there. Okay. So when the the traders are pushing back because they're seeing real world information and often have some sport experience, then you're like, all right, so the model might be wrong in these ways and we're picking up that information on a regular basis where might the holes be so we can improve that that goes directly into the team space as well where the coaches are like you don't know this information or this chance is better than your model thinks it is and you're like 
sure, coach, you're, you're right. But like, unfortunately, we can't use your eyes in order to codify every single thing that goes yep. on. There are not, you know, 150 of you to look yep. at every single game. So we've got the model here. But at some point, you have to admit that he's got a point. Right. And can we improve the data to mm-hmm. incorporate his opinion a little better in an objective way mm-hmm. and then produce better information? Mm-hmm. I think with the benefit, you get this some with coaches, but especially with gambling, you get reps. You get reps that most people don't get. I mean, one of the beautiful things about sports gambling is that there's resolution to these events and usually pretty quickly. And so you're, I mean, this is what you need to learn is you need feedback and repetition. And you're getting that in a way there you don't get it other places. It strikes me that you don't get it in such a pure way as a, and with the coaches. So they, they, they have opinions and they've got experience, but it's not quite as black and white and not quite as highly repeated as it is, as it is when you're betting. So what's amazing with coaches is like often I've, we found this inside of soccer, especially people who have degrees don't understand how coaches learn. And this actually was like this crucial paradigm for us because we wanted them to start to build skill sets that allowed them to coach the game in a better way. And we're telling them what the better way is. But the problem is you can't just learn this. Like, and coaching is a very uh, hands-on, almost an apprenticeship type thing. Mm-hmm. You can't pick it up from book learning because you have to have visual cues that allow you to, to interrupt things and say, this is, quite, this is wrong. So what happened was at an ownership level or even at a director of football level where everybody's like very highly degreed and very intelligent and has you know, gone to school, then you go to the coach level and you need to either give them somebody that has this knowledge already to then transfer the knowledge and, and help bolster that, or right. you have to allow them to fail which you can't do in sports. Yeah. So how do you get the reps in order to have this new information? Right. Good. Have you answered that yet? Mm, we, we have some ideas, but it, I, I would say that's very much a, mostly in the nascent idea stage. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things I know you're trying to do is to pair your data with, with video. And um, that seems critical. So as analysts, we're not impressed with like a video of an event because it's just an anecdote. But when it comes to communicating, and especially with folks like coaches who are, have learned, as you say, from, from experience and from apprenticeship, that's a powerful combination. It's like you, they, if they can't see it, they're not going to believe you. But that's, if you just let them see it one time, all of a sudden thing. they believe the regression. Uh, they're, they're inherently skeptical uh, because they've learned most things through their own knowledge, and that makes sense. They're not wrong. Uh, also, like video conveys so much more information than yeah. your basic data set. Yeah. So when they're able to combine it and say, all right, the video and the data are the same and we're just giving you information. We're not giving you stats and data and whatever. That's scary, right? I mean, new things are scary to everybody, yeah. even the, the people that like to learn. So we give you information. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And the video here backs that up. Mm-hmm. So like, we've got an error check. And as you do that more often, you build a relationship so they're comfortable with it. And it doesn't have to even be with you. It just has to be with your data and your product. Yep. It's interesting you say it that way. It makes me think it almost changes the way they think about the data if it comes with a picture, if it comes with a video. All of a sudden, it's, as you say, information. It's not a statistic. Right, and, and the players are the same way too. And actually, one of the things that we spend a lot of time on as a company is producing better visualizations. Mm-hmm. How do we produce visualizations that take a lot of data and then convey it into pictures that just make sense? Mm-hmm. And, and some of that's like A-B testing in some ways, mm-hmm. but a lot of it is just you know realizing as, as quants, you... You look at the data and you might plot the data just like double check what the distributions look like and stuff like that. In real world application, data visualization is massively powerful. Right, right. So but we're going to have to wrap up shortly, sadly, but I want to hear something more technical about what you're finding in soccer. So take us back to the beginning of the conversation. You're about to talk to Daryl about where soccer is compared to other sports. And 
necessarily almost it's behind baseball and basketball but you're still doing some cutting edge stuff and you're trying to come up with measures new measures kind of creating measures in soccer because they haven't existed before can you tell us about this the passing the progressive passing i forget the exact term you use but it's something you're trying to figure out about the way ball the ball moves down the pitch so the the funny little thing about soccer is that everybody thinks of the goals and the shots but it's really a passing game they're like a thousand passes in a game uh, and 30 shots in a game so it's a passing game that happens to have shots and goals at the end of it. Mm-hmm. And so when you're trying to evaluate players, what you want to look at is, yes, we look at the passes, but really it's about ball progression, right? The, the attack, is it's an attacking invasion sport that mm-hmm. hockey is, NBA is as mm-hmm. well. Um, so we started early on profiling passing and expected passing difficulty and stuff like that. Um, some very interesting papers that, that were secret for quite a while that okay. then got later released from other people. And then we looked at it and said, but that's not the only way you can move up the pitch, right? You can move up via dribbles, you can move up by carrying the ball. And so we started to get to the point we wanted to look at holistic ball progression. So who's taking the ball in the most dangerous areas? What does the pitch real estate model look like that we've used from elsewhere? Okay. And then, you know, when you're able to progress the ball, uh, especially when our data starts to have pressure on it. So if you're progressing under pressure, that has an added degree of difficulty. Right. If you succeed with added difficulty, you become really interesting as okay. a player that you might want to recruit. Okay. Terrifically interesting. And I can only imagine how complicated it is to sort all of that because it's one thing to talk about those concepts, but then you've got to operationalize it in some objective way and hopefully in some way that scales algorithmically. It's a... we're still a tech company and all of the things that you have with tech debt and, and sort of it's like sometimes wrong path, uh, wrong paths that you take in like research as well. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's always challenging. It's yeah. new research. It's, it's almost like an academic pursuit that happens to have a business model. It sounds attached. like it. It really does sound like it. All right. I always say Texas, Oklahoma in the cotton bowl in October, best sporting event you can go to can't beat the atmosphere, but you're a premier league guy and you live in London how does it compare? How does the Cotton Bowl, Texas, Oklahoma, on a good year, when they're both when they're both at the top of their game, compare to some match in and around the Premier League? Premier League has pretty good, but I would have to say that the Dortmund knocks it out of the park. Really? Like Bruce Dortmund and the, really? the German atmosphere and the yellow wall, it is outstanding. And it's outstanding almost every week. It's almost like a, a fan performance by, by 70,000 people. <laughs> It's really incredible. I, I will say, though, that, that college football is probably the only sport in the United States that has the same level of passion as European okay. football. Okay, terrific. All right, listen, Ted, thanks for joining us. Have fun at the conference, and good luck with your session with Daryl coming up. Thank you very much. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.